There you go. Can y'all hear me okay? It's a it's a long way uh, to Central Texas where I am right now, and uh, I'm sitting in our book bindery. I'm a bookbinder by trade. Some of y'all may be old enough to remember books. I'm looking real quick. Yeah, some of it might be. Um, listen, I was doing a yeah. There you go. I was doing one the other day, and I was talking. To, it looked like a sea of kids. It looked like the oldest one in there was like 12. And and I said something about books, and and this guy holds up an iPad, and I went, ought I ought I hit you? Uh, this is come on, a real live book. Um, but I'm in our bindery in Central Texas, and um, um, it's just a treat to uh, to be here with you guys. Rodney, thanks for sharing, and um, uh, Matthew, thanks for asking me to come uh, come do this. It's uh, it it is an it's an honor to get a chance to do it, and. Um, and I, to be honest with you, I, I was kind of excited because uh, lately, um, especially over the last four or five months, I've been doing a whole lot of all my regular travel in AA stopped immediately. And and I was hoping that we'd get a chance to talk about various things. And really and truly, almost everybody says, no, no, we don't, you don't do any step stuff. We just want you to do some, just do a story. Guys, you have no idea how tired I get of hearing my head rattle about a story. I, I, I just, um, uh, it's, it's pitiful. Um, but I do love talking about the basic idea of our program, which completely eluded me for a while. I want to talk for like five or six minutes on some story stuff so you can kind of connect up um, some dots of why I, I tend to look at this stuff through uh, two different views. One um, the first seven years that I was in the program, um, and, and then the way I look at it today. Uh, but those first seven years always and still do today affect how I look at the program and how I look at AA as a whole. Um, and we'll we'll talk about it a little bit. I, I don't know why people seem to get a little uncomfortable about it when we talk about AA as a whole. Uh, I'm not trying to be critical of anything, but <clears throat> I think that. Um, um, if you want to lose something, just ignore it and uh, assume that it's going to be okay. Sometimes you have to make hard decisions and you have to look at things um, um, critically uh, to see if you're on track. That's the reason why we have group conscience. That's the reason why Bill Wilson codified the traditions. Um, there were a lot of reasons why uh, we did these things so that we could um, um, hold this stuff together. Um, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty precious. I, I, um, I don't know if any of y'all have ever read, um, there's a book out there called um, Slaying the Dragon. Uh, it was written by a cat named William White, and it was primarily about the uh, beginning of the treatment industry uh, at the start of the, uh, uh, the Hughes Act in 1971. And the, the, but there's a lot of history there of alcoholism through the ages um, and guys, I got to tell you, it was a pivotal thing for me. I, I looked back through it the other day, and these pictures in this book uh, just were burnt into my head um, uh, of what they um, what they portray. Back in Bill's story, there's a place back there, right at the end of his story, where he says, "I watched men walk out of asylums." And I never understood what they were what they were talking about. And after I read this book, I began to connect up. Um, um, so before AA was here, so 85 years ago, 85 plus years ago now, but 85 years ago, before that, 
if you were a, 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 a screw up in any way around an addiction and they didn't know what to do with you, they would put you in one of these asylums. And there were, there were dozens and dozens of these asylums scattered across the country. Canada had some, um, uh, and they were, um, they were sort of horrendous places because um, they didn't know what to do with us. I mean, they, they were just, they didn't know. And there was no solution. Um, and so you ended up in a situation where there were tens of thousands of people that killed themselves in those asylums because they were so unbelievably miserable. They had been separated from the only thing that was connecting dots for them, the booze or the dope or whatever they were doing like this, and, and um, left to be confined for the rest of their life. And it was a horrendous way to live. Guys, the reason I'm even bring, bringing this up is because it, it was such um, it made me stop and think um, how grateful I am today, but how often I take for granted um, the bigger picture of our recovery and how fortunate we are um, that a bunch of train wrecks got together and codified this thing and, and put it in a place and in a way that we could understand it um, it was truly uh, an amazing deal. Um, um, if you get a chance, look at that. You'll get a kick out of it. The, um, one of the things that I've learned a long time ago that was always kind of funny in my travels is um, how often people, the nicest people in the world, but how often people in meetings when asked about what alcoholism looked like, what alcoholism was, they would talk about their story, like the story defined their alcoholism. And it doesn't. Um, all you got to do is read everything from Bill's story, uh, the next two chapters over to We Agnostics, and you'll begin to understand the bigger picture. We'll talk a little bit about, about, that, um, about that stuff. I sobered up January 15th of 88, and my twin brother, the evil twin, uh, brought me to my first AA meeting and it blew me away. I, I just truly, uh, I fell in love with AA and the folks there. Unfortunately for me, uh, I happened to land in a group that took the steps as a um, sort of a cafeteria item. We, you know, you take what you want and you leave the rest kind of thing. And they talked about it that way. And so because I'm a business guy and I'm busy, I've got some daughters and I've got a wife and I've got things that I want to do. Um, I, I'm not really going to, do much of anything. And so I didn't read the book. I didn't, I, I got a sponsor in name only. I'd never worked the steps. And for two or three years, things were pretty cool. I learned to fly airplanes. I became a private pilot and, and uh, uh, that was all fun. And I did some other stuff that was fun. Um, and the sober life was good. The problem here, and some of y'all can relate. I, I think some of you will understand what I'm talking about. Um, if you don't do anything, um, you often will find yourself in a situation where this idea, this restless, irritable, and discontent that we talk about sometimes begins to come back. And for a lot of us, we just get slapped by it and don't really know what it is. And then we start treating it other ways. Um, I couldn't count the number of men I've sponsored over the years who um, didn't treat the internal condition and ended up drifting from one addiction to another addiction to another addiction, to, and it could be anything. People, I mean, I've I've got a friend of mine like that that I've known for 20 years in AA, and, and this guy's been twisted up in porn. 
and gambling, and he now weighs close to 400 pounds. Y'all get what I'm saying? He's not drinking, and he's not at any dope house like that, but he's, he's, treating, he's still treating the internal condition. And I can't, for the life of me, get him to understand that there is a true solution that would treat that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to treat mine by doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I'm, guys, I'm, sp- I, I, I needed to buy an airplane after I got a pilot's license. I needed to buy this airplane. Now, you should have been there for this conversation with my wife. We're trying to start this book bindery up by Dallas, Texas. And um, um, we barely got it off the ground. I have one daughter that's three and a half, four years old by now. And, and I've got to buy this airplane. If you all know anything about planes, they're expensive. Expensive to buy, expensive to maintain, expensive just. Anyway, and then a little bit later, I had to have another one because I found a cooler one. So I got now two airplanes. And then two years later, I found this project airplane, a 1944 L4, and I had to have it too. So now I can't afford one airplane and now I own three. I'm buying clothes I don't wear. I'm buying music I don't listen to. I'm buying all kinds of stuff. I just, it's ridiculous. It truly is ridiculous. Um, I'm I'm depressed like a big dog. I'm approaching six years sober. Uh, I'm now uh, suicidal. Uh, Every day I get up just completely deflated. I don't know what's going to happen. Some days I can't even go to work. My wife is my business partner. She's the brains of the operation. And, and she, um, she's just sitting here scratching her head, looking at me going, what, what am I supposed to do? You're not, even, you're not even showing up for work. And in my head, I'm saying, well, I'm, I'm sober, so it's okay. And she's looking at me going, no, I don't, we don't see this the same at all. You, you need to suit up, show up, uh, put the big boy pants on, and let's get this work done. Um, and it's, it's getting goofy. Um, towards the end of it, she was just, she had decided to move to Houston and she was going to go do something else. And I don't blame her a bit. And, um, uh, it's, I'm so grateful that she stayed. Um, uh, cause long about seven years, I'm three weeks shy of seven years. And I almost drank one night. I have to be really clear with you. I, um, I don't want to drink again. I don't want to go back and do what I was doing. Um, but I, um, I had no other choice. I didn't know what I was going to do is either drink or die. And um, so um, Chris, the evil twin, had since moved to the hill country down where I am right now in central Texas and had gotten a sponsor, a guy by the name of Mark Houston, who is a big book guy. And Mark was was special times 10. And Chris was transformed. I mean, he was like nothing I'd ever seen. Um, And um, Chris said, you're going to have to find somebody to help you. And I, uh, he gave me the name of an old guy, who, which I didn't call. And eventually, it got so bad that I had to call him. And so I called uh, Clifford and uh, Cliff uh, Bishop, who have been dead now for several years. And he was, uh, he was old as dirt when I got a hold of him. I don't know. He was in his 90s when he died. And um, uh, but the old dude saved my life because he helped me understand that there was big pieces of this thing that I was missing that I just didn't understand. I had never had a step one experience. I'd never really worked the steps, so I really didn't know what a relationship with my creator was about. I didn't understand any of that. Um, I'm just trying to stay sober one stupid day at a time. I can read you every little aphorism off the wall, think, 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 just don't drink. Just, I mean, I can, that's the extent of my program, but it seemed to be okay with the people that I was running with. 
uh, we had 32 meetings a week um, and no book studies. 32 meetings a week and no literature-based meetings. They were all discussion meetings. And I was consigned to this kind of crazy, damn, if this is all there is, I'm in real trouble. And, um, and I was. It was, it was a, a horrible time for me. People say, when I was, the last days of my drinking was just terrible. You know what? Seven years sober, quote unquote, with no program uh, and no experience with the steps was, was bad times 10. It was the worst I've ever been. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't wish that on anybody. The reason I tell you the story is because there have been hundreds of men that I've met over the years that have struggled, and gals too, that have struggled with this uh, predicament of getting sober and then sitting there one day and asking yourself this rhetorical question up in your head, is this all there is? Is this just, am I just staying sober today? Is this all there is? And, and sometimes you have to kind of go, no, there's not. And one of the greatest ways to find out that there's more is to read the text. Read the basic text and study it, and then all of a sudden you'll, you'll find out that Bill Wilson talks in grand, black and white, declarative statements that paint a picture of a life that is truly remarkable if we'll just simply move towards it. Um, and that seems to be the, um, the dilemma. Y'all ever notice how willing brand new people are to, to do something about recovery and then later the willingness seems just to go away? And, and it, it just, and unless there is a situation in there where there's some more pain thrown into the picture, um, then um, if there's enough pain, they'll move back towards the, towards the solution. But what usually happens is, what we see statistically anyway, is that people will come in, get sober, uh, uh, live that existence for a while, and then they'll start drifting the other direction again until the, the pain and suffering becomes enough that they say, fooey on this, I'm going to go do something to fix this. They get loaded again, and then the cycle just begins to repeat itself, and it's, it's, it's tragic. Guys, we've never, ever in the history of our program have we ever had a tr any problem getting people to come to AA. We've never had a problem with it. We have a heck of a time sometimes getting them to stay, and I think that this is one of the areas that we as, as members of this, this fellowship need to do some, some thinking and try to figure out what it is that maybe we could do better, um, um, and there's always a solution to that. There's always something to go to. I don't know if you guys had ever heard that. There's a, guy, a cat by the name of Paul Fisher. I'm not sure if Paul's still alive. Um, um, there's a, a little article that he wrote years ago called Reflections of Step One. And I want to, if I could, please, I want to read the, just the first little part of this. It's a two and a half pages long. I'm only going to read the first couple of paragraphs on it. It's real short. Uh, but it's going to set the stage kind of for the other part that I want to talk about here about Step One stuff. Um, the, uh, by the way, I also I have this on a, <clears throat> on a, in a file that I can send to you if there's any interest at all. I'll be glad to do that. So. My experience and attitude with steps two through 12 is simply a reflection of what one experience, of what I experience in step one. If I'm honest with myself in step one, I cannot escape the truth. I cannot escape the reality that there is nothing I can do to keep myself sober. I will see that I am guaranteed to drink again. There is no hope in step one. I will digest the truth that I do not have the power to choose whether I will not drink. Um, 
Relying on my memory of suffering to keep me sober is no longer an option. My better judgment and greater intellect will not produce a mental defense against the first drink. As a result of experiencing the first step, rather than it being an intellectual exercise, I'm in touch with my powerlessness at a gut level. Now, this tends to produce discomfort. This discomfort is a gift. This very gift promotes a desire to seek power, which I do not possess. This discomfort is not to be confused with fear being the motivation to stay sober. To rely on fear to stay sober is dangerous, but the day will come when the fear will disappear, and then there will be no reason for me to stay sober. And I'll finish up with this last little piece. To be honest, in my first step is to surrender completely. I'm surrendering to the fact that I have no power. This surrender is what produces the hope and promises in the remaining steps. Without this surrender, I will not experience an entire psychic change, nor will I experience the many gifts that the big book authors talk about. Remember that little piece in the book where it's like the, uh, uh, lack of power? That was our dilemma. Um, and, and we have to find the power. The, the idea that I can, I can will myself to do any of this is, is ludicrous at best. It's just not going to work. I, I just, uh, so let's, let's look at the disease itself. Let's look at the, at the, the problem that we're faced with when we, when we look at this stuff. This is the stuff that eluded me for seven years. Um, um, every one of us, I don't think there's anybody in this room tonight it doesn't understand the physical component of alcoholism. Silkworth kicks it out of the ballpark. Dr. Silkworth, in his, in, in, in his that chapter that he wrote there, um, uh, the doc's opinion, 98% um, um, of everything that Silkworth talks about is about the physical component of alcoholism. And listen, how cool would it be if the only problem we had was the physical part of that? I mean, wouldn't that be, that'd be the bomb, because then all we'd have to do is just stay away from the dead gum stuff, and we'd be okay. I, I totally dig that. Uh, that'd be great. Even non-alcoholics get that. Even your loved ones get that, you know? It's like, it's like when Rodney starts, man, Katie barred the door. It's, I mean, he's going he's gonna to do some crazy stuff. We know he's going to like that. I mean, even his loved ones that are around him. Hell, Dr. Phil gets it. Oprah gets it. I, Everybody gets the physical part like that. They understand that. Let me tell you where it gets goofy. So we get out of Silkworth's story, and we skip over Bill's story. We'll come back to it in a minute. But we skip over Bill's story, and we have two whole chapters before we get to we agnostics. There is a solution, and more about alcoholism, that address the mental obsession, the mental component of alcoholism. This is the second part. And I'm telling you guys, it is the baffling feature of this deal. How come it is stone cold sober with no booze anywhere in me do I find myself back loaded again? This is the stuff that drives your family nuts. It drives your doctor nuts. It drives your pastor nuts. It drives everybody you know nuts because they were going, buddy, you were sober. I don't get it. What? How could you possibly go back and do that? Great question. Great question. I was a member of a church, a big church in Houston, years and years and years ago. Um, um, 
and I used to, I, those folks loved me to death and they would, they would lay hands on me and do, I mean, they were just the sweetest bunch of people in the whole wide world. And I'd leave church, go home thinking, okay, I got this. I'm going to be all groovy. It's going to be great. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, when the Houston Oilers got ready to get beat again, I'd be sitting on a couch with a 12 pack of beer next to me. And I'd be sitting there. My wife would walk through and she'd look at me and she'd go, are you're crazy, right? I mean, you're, you're insane, right? And I'd go, I, maybe, maybe I am. Because I didn't understand why. Why would that happen? Um, then this whole thing, back over on page 64, Bill will introduce us to this spiritual component of this thing, this restless, irritable, and discontent that drives the whole train wreck. Guys, the reason we teach it, and the reason I like to teach it separately the, the book in two different places talks about a twofold piece there, a physical component and a mental component that separates us from normal folks, which is, which is easy to understand for us in this room. We get that. Um, the, 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 the third component of this thing, um, all God's kids, all, underline all God's kids struggle with uh, the, the, the spiritual malady. Uh, the difference is, is that normal people, when they struggle, when they're restless, irritable, and discontent, I mean, my wife is the most normal woman in the universe. I mean, from a mental health standpoint, she's as normal as she can be. And if, if she's restless, irritable, and discontent, she deals with it. She talks to a pastor. She'll, she'll talk to one of our daughters. She'll go for a walk. She'll what? Y'all understand? And, and what I don't, what I think about is a beer as big as a refrigerator. And, and then I'm okay, you see? I mean, it's just, it's the craziest thing. One of the most fascinating papers I ever read, um, I also work part-time in the treatment field, and one of the most, one of the most fascinating papers I ever wrote were, was, or ever read was this article about the early days, the research around alcoholism um, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, where they were trying to figure all of this stuff out from a from a scientific standpoint, what they were doing was they were taking identical twins, and they were separating them at birth, and they would so one twin would end up over in a in an affluent family, and one twin would end up in a mediocre or or, or a, a borderline poverty uh, deal, and they started watching these guys. So they had dozens of these cases that they're watching, and. Everybody was was really excited and then really disappointed because what was happening is because everybody wanted this to be causal. They wanted the disease to be causal like that. So if we can draw a, a, a circle around what it is that's causing the alcoholism, then all we got to do and what what everybody hoped it was, was that it was money. That it was just simply uh, if we could put, throw enough coin at it, we could make it all go away. And then we ended up with, y'all, I mean, all you got to do is turn on TV and you see people that are as affluent as they can be that have tons of money and they get loaded. They can be in poverty and they get loaded. They can be, And then they say, okay, we're going to have to do something else. So they go back around and start working through. And then they started working at it from a genetic deal perspective and they began to see uh, what was going on. Guys, the, the genetic bullet is there. Um, and this was probably the biggest single exciting piece of the research that they were doing was that they could uh, draw this stuff back to genetics. Um, if you're a Native American in any country, even if Aboriginal, it doesn't make, if you're a Native uh, 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 American or an, or an Indian like that, 
um, uh, welcome to AA. Um, the statistical stuff for the, in the United States is about 97% uh, uh, are, are, of Native Americans are manifesting the genetic predisposition. That doesn't mean they're all falling down drunks. It just means that the genetic predisposition is there. Um, if you're Irish, welcome. I mean, it's just, it just, there it is. Guys, if you kick the Raymer family tree, little drunks and dope fiends fall out all over the ground. I mean, it's crazy like that. Um, it, I've got records back four generations. Uh, of, of drunks in, in, uh, um, on my dad's side going way back. Um, crazy. It's just the we drew the genetic bullet. I have two sisters, and neither one of them drew the genetic bullet. And my identical twin and I did. Um, it wasn't causal. It wasn't, we weren't touched. We weren't, we weren't, there was nothing weird going on. We lived in a great family. My dad was a, was a, a talented uh, bookbinder. He taught me this trade. And um, uh, my mom was an artist, and it was it was great. It was groovy. There's nothing weird. I, I'm not ever saying. I'm not ever trying to imply in any way that trauma and drama don't throw in to the mix, that don't that don't cause a, a, a problem. But it's not causal. It, this this is not what it is that caused the genetic part of it. That caused the 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 manifestation. So you got to kind of pay attention to it. Uh, just as an interesting little piece of information, in the 32 years, coming up on 33 years now, I've known one Asian kid in AA, one. I still sponsor him today. The genetics are not there like this. They don't, they don't work that way. Um, it's just, that's just the way it is. Um, fascinating stuff. Anyway, I love the, I love the stuff. But the, um, But when we're teaching this stuff, if you go back and you look at there is a solution more about alcoholism, sometime when you're in a book study, guys, y'all, y'all see if you can count how many times Bill Wilson refers us back to the chapters on alcoholism is what they call it. They do it in the chapter of the wives. They do it in uh, we agnostics um, 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 because what they're trying to get us to understand, and this is the part that baffles me about our fellowship as a whole worldwide is that we have tens of thousands of people literally that are sitting in our rooms sharing that still don't know what their disease looks like that still don't understand what the disease of alcoholism is and they can't they can't explain it guys somewhere along the line listen i'm i don't i'm not trying to rag on anybody but somewhere along the line we have to stop this idea that if we just share enough stories that people will be able to identify. Sometimes they do identify. We, I, I don't. I think Bill. Bill talks about it. It's. It's. It, you got to have a story. He told his story to to uh, Dr. Bob, and Dr. Bob told his story to the next guy down the road, and this sort of thing. I mean, it, I understand all of that and how it works. But guys, I sat in meetings for seven years. In those meetings north of Dallas, where I live now, um, and listened to people share their stories six meetings a week for seven years. I'm listening to people share their stories and nobody's talking about a physical component of this thing. Nobody's talking about a mental component. Nobody's trying to, to nobody's trying to do this stuff. And the, the problem is at some point in time, people are getting tired of hearing the story. They don't want to hear the story anymore. What they want to hear is, I right, stop, stop, stop. I, I, need, I need more. And, and Bill gave us that. The book gave us that, but we don't, we don't study it. 
Guys, there's two meetings in in the Dallas-Fort Worth area right now where they won't even let you take a big book in the meeting. You can't even walk in the meeting with a big book. It's not just not that important, Myers. It's just not. The heck it's not. It's the most freeing thing that ever happened to me when I began to understand that I don't have to be smart. I don't have to be sharp. I don't have to be quick. I don't have to be witty, funny. I don't have to be any of that stuff. What I have to know in order to sponsor is what the book was teaching me, um, the directions. And then once I got the directions going, then uh, um, uh, sponsorship became the easiest thing in the whole wide world. Um, I was two years, two years at Primary Purpose Group in Dallas. Um, uh, carrying the message, and actually, I was carrying Cliff Bishop's books for him. I wasn't really doing much much teaching, um, and um, he he eventually just would say I, because I re I realized I was still different. I'm nine years sober, and I have never sponsored anybody. And Cl Clifford, one night, he said, "Myers, you said you're going to have to seriously. You're going to have to um, get get busy uh, and get involved um, so that we can um, get you." Uh, uh, where you're supposed to be, and uh, they tricked me and made me go to the Salvation Army by myself, and I had to chair that meeting, and it was a scary thing, and but I did it, and everything, I went the next day and did it again, and it was the coolest thing in the whole wide world, because all of a sudden, I realized that um, that I am my worst enemy, um, that um, y'all ever noticed that you could be harder on yourself than anybody else could possibly be? I mean, I, I'll just, I'll just, 100% convinced that I'm never going to be smart enough to help anybody. And the reality of that stuff is, is that the only thing standing between me and a transformed life helping other people is me. And I just need to quit with all of that, that stuff. What I need is an understanding uh, of this. Um, go look in, uh, in more about alcoholism. Remember the story in the front of the book, uh, Jim's story and Fred's story uh, in the front of the, the book. And, and then, so Jim and Fred crash and burn, and then they call AA. AA comes and sees them. They t the AA guys tell them a little story. They, they talk a little bit, and then the guys say, okay, that sounds groovy. In both situations, the illustrations are the, kind of the same. They say, okay, that's cool. Uh, you guys rock, uh, but I think we got this deal. And then in, in a short uh, period of time, Jim and Fred both crash and burn again. This time they call AA back. AA comes back and look at what it says in the in the in the text. Look at what it says. In both cases, in both stories, it says exactly the same thing. We told them what we knew about alcoholism. It didn't say we told them our story again. It said we told them what we knew about alcoholism, what they were expecting to do. Guys, listen, I can't scare you into coming to alcohol to, to coming into AA and trying to get sober by me telling you about eating out of dumpsters or or whatever story I happen to be telling you like this. However, um, if I can if I can help you understand that you have a disease that gets worse, never better, that bodily and physically you are uh, uh, mentally you're in real trouble. Um, uh, there would be enough motivation to make you do the things that you need to do because otherwise you just simply won't won't do it. If you doubt that, how many of y'all have ever um, uh, done any 12-step work other places where you were going to a jail or a treatment center or wind-up joints of any kind, a halfway house, 
where you're going to carry a message. How many of you have ever noticed that you get a brand new little guy that comes in and he's as compliant as he can be? He's just like, if you said, in order to get sober, you have to eat this hairy spider and you held it up like this, he'd be going, what part do I eat first? I mean, it's just like, I'll do anything if you'll just help me get sober like that. Let that same kid sit in um, a halfway house uh, or uh, a treatment center eating good, um, working out his problems, talking to some people, um, um, watch his attitude when you go back and see him later. What, just watch him. It's an amazing thing like that. There was a place in Dallas, that place called Homeward Bound, that I, was one of my favorite 12-step places for years and years and years. They, they moved it now, but it was for five years I was there uh, twice a week, and it, it was um, a, a phenomenal place. But these guys, they had a policy they would let us work steps one, two, and three with these guys when they got there. These are a lot of these guys are riding off the street. They'd let us work with them one, two, and three, and then we had to leave them alone for 90 days or towards the end of their their deal. When they when they coined out at 90 days, then you could come back and do inventory with them. But for whatever reason, they wouldn't let us do inventory while they were in treatment. And I cannot tell you, I couldn't even count how many men I had through one, two, and three in a week and a half. And they were, they were, they were so excited that they were, I mean, they were just like ecstatic that there was a solution right on the horizon like this. And then by the time I got ready to do step work with them, they're sitting in the back of the room with their hat on backwards and sunglasses on in the house and with a chair kicked back. And, and I'm walking in going, dude, you, you, you're going to, you ready? Well, Myers, you know, I think I know why I, I've been drinking and doing the things that I've been doing. I think, I think really, I just, I just, Myers, I just make some bad mistakes, but I'm not going to make those mistakes anymore. I, I'm not going to make those mistakes. And, and, and that girl, she's not, she's the sister of Satan and she caused a lot of this problem like that, but I didn't, I'm, I'm not going to go back to her. I'm going to find me a different girl. Really? Okay. Okay. Next. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> y'all understand that, right? It, it, it is the craziest thing in the world to watch the dynamics of this stuff. Um, one of the things, if I could change about AA, is this attitude that we seem to have worldwide, that we have an unlimited amount of time to work guys through the steps. I, when I say that, people go, oh, here it comes, here it comes, he's going to talk... I'm not trying to, I'm not talking about shoving steps up somebody's rear. I'm not talking about beating somebody up with a big book, but I am saying um, based on the, the, the stuff that they talk about on page 24, that little piece in italics, we won't remember with sufficient force, the pain and suffering of even a week or a month ago. We were without defense against the first drink. This is the stuff I'm talking about guys. Time is not your friend. Uh, the quicker you can get guys through the work, the quicker they can have this experience the, the healthier they seem to be. And, and that's why I told you part of that story ahead of time uh, earlier in the hour, um, because I'm looking at this from two different perspectives. I'm looking at this from, I'm going to spread this out over a year to get guys through the work to I'm going to do this stuff in 45 days and get them through the work in 30 to 45 days and then see what happens. I can tell you categorically, I'm an outcome-based guy. I watch this stuff for years. And, and what I'm going to, what I'm seeing is that, Quicker is always better unless there is a co-occurring situation that, that is complicating the situation. 
if they're dealing with with other issues, trauma, drama, whatever else, um, uh, mental health issues. Uh, sometimes this stuff you have to tap the brake and you know just kind of slow down. But um, but a more timely um, uh, approach through this. I was talking to a guy yesterday and he said, Myers, I just disagree with you. And I said, okay, that's okay. And he said, I like to sit with my guys and, and once a week we sit there and we read the big book and I'm going, how cool. I love that idea. I think it's the coolest thing in the whole wide world. Really. Um, I love the fact that you're, that you would do that with them. Um, how successful have you been with that? And he laughed. And then he said, well, I guess it's not funny. And I said, what? And he said, I don't think I've been successful with anybody. And I said, I, I think that you have the right attitude. I think that you have the right idea about approaching these guys. Uh, but I think what we need to do is, is we need to treat these men and women that are coming in like triage, uh, like they're bleeding uh, uh, and they're going to die if we don't do something. And, and let's get them through what we got to do. And then we'll go back and we'll read and we'll do whatever. I'm fortunate enough to be in a home group where all we do is book studies. We don't, we don't have a single discussion meeting. Uh, frankly, we don't give a fuzzy rat's rear what your day was like. We don't care. There's plenty of groups that you can talk about like that. It's okay. I, I don't want to offend anybody, but the, but the, the, the book studies allow us to, on a, on a, on a more aggressive way, uh, move uh, folks through uh, the work and help them understand. But, and my job as a sponsor is to get you to do that. So let me explain. Let me explain this real quick, and it, it, it's real simple to do this. Let me ask you this question. How long do you think it takes to start somebody in the steps? Now, that's a fair question because it's one of the confusing areas of our fellowship that we play a lot of games with. So uh, I've got some friends in Germany, and they have this thing called the German system. I don't. I think it's a little more. It's a different name, but that's what he always called it. Where, where, when you get sober, you come in and you sit and get to know everybody for 160 days, and then they start working you through the steps. Well, I love the idea of it. That I, I, to have a bunch of new homies and and to pal around for 160 days before I do anything. The problem is it doesn't seem to work really well. Um, uh, so the the question becomes is how. Um, how do you know when it's time to work the steps? So um, in how it works, I want to read this little piece. Remember over on Chapter 5, there was a little piece on there on page 58 where it talks about, so two-thirds of the way down that page, there's a little paragraph that starts out like this, and we've heard it a million times. Most of us just check out mentally because we've heard it so many times. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, what we're like now. If you've decided that you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. Okay, there were two questions in that sentence. But let me ask you this question because it's important that we understand this thing. How many meetings would you have to go to in order to make those two decisions? If you've decided that you want what we have, that's one question and are willing to go to any length to get it, and I'm going to explain what any length looks like, then you're ready um, uh, to take certain steps. That was the key that tells us when and how fast we're supposed to start with these guys. But let me tell you, I've, I spent um, hundreds 
of times sitting on the tailgate of my pickup in Texas. We all have pickups, everybody. So, I mean, just sitting on the tailgate of my pickup um, uh, before a meeting, talking about the program and talking about this vision of what recovery looks like. And this guy is sitting there and then I ask him these questions and he goes, yes, yes. He's never even been in a meeting yet and he's already ready to do something. I'm just saying it doesn't always happen like that. He may want to, I'm not saying that we're trying to keep him out of the meeting. I'm just saying this idea guys that we let these precious folks who are so beat up from their disease um, make these decisions, and then we let the newcomer decide how quickly we're going to do the work and how we're going to do the work and what we're going to do. This kind of, I, I just, I, if we could change anything, I'd like this just to back up and rethink that whole idea um, and see if we couldn't take a little more, just this much more of a leadership role in helping these guys understand uh, what the deal is. And so, um, one of the things that I love to do when I have this conversation about uh, uh, them being ready is I'll flip them over to the um, page 44 in We Agnostics. Um, it's the title page, the very first page of We Agnostics on, on this stuff. That, that paragraph is amazing. Um, and it was like you could almost see Bill Wilson and the, the first 100 when they wrote this stuff. You could almost see them go, Bill's sitting there going, okay, I've been dreading writing this chapter about we agnostics for months and months and months. I've been dreading this stuff, but I got to do it. We're going to get into it. But before we get into it, I want to circle the wagon one more time and see if I can codify some key points of the last three chapters that we just read through and see if I can make them um, uh, um, uh, just one more chance for people to see uh, where they are before we start into moving towards something that these people may be really uncomfortable to move towards. And we see a lot of that in recovery. People are real sensitive and real uncertain about moving towards a creator that they don't understand. And I, I, I get that. But look at what he says. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. This is magic stuff, guys. It's called, I know, it's going to it just... It's called qualifying. <laughs> and if you want to see people's hair catch on fire in a meeting, just mention the Q word and watch what happens because people automatically think that we're trying to be exclusionary and we're not. I'm just trying to avoid uh, with somebody else. When, when Rodney comes to our meeting like this, I'm trying to make sure that Rodney doesn't go through the same seven years of chaos um, that I went through trying to figure out what the heck was going on. I'm seven years sober, and I don't even know what the disease looks like. I don't even know if I'm a real alcoholic until after I was in the book studies over at this other group for a month or two, and we read this, chap this chapter and this paragraph, and then I went, holy cow, I I'm an alcoholic. Look at what it says. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, that's one thing. Or when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take. They're talking about choice and control. Have you lost the power of choice and control? That's what they're, what they're after like that. Then you're probably alcoholic. And then the coolest thing in the world, he didn't back down. They didn't play games with it. They told you exactly what was going on. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness, which what? 90 meetings in 90 days will conquer. No, he didn't say that. Did he? Did he? He didn't. He said, which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Why do we dance around that stuff? 
I don't understand it. Why we dance around the, the, the fact. I want to show you what alcoholism is. Um, the, if you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. If I tell my wife, I'm never going to drink again, and then I find myself three weeks later drinking again, I've lost the power of choice. If, if I tell my wife, I said, listen, I'm leaving work. I'm going to go by this, this place down here. I'm going to drink one beer with these guys, and we're going to maybe throw one game of darts, and then I'm coming home. She says, great, great. I'll see you in a few minutes. And then I go over there, and I end up having three, four, five, eight beers, whatever it is. Then I've lost the power of control. And on this continuum, from my first drink here to being brain dead over here, we don't know where we are on that, on that continuum. And it's different. It's different with women. It's different with men. Guys, I'm seeing kids now that are 19, 20, 21 years old already struggling with end-stage alcoholism. It's, it's terrifying to some of these little guys, and, and you just you don't know where you're going to be. I worked as a functioning alcoholic, and for 15 years, I drank with some impunity. I drank every day, uh, but, but you couldn't tell that I had anything to drink. And then when I crossed that line, all of a sudden, I drank one beer or two beers, and I couldn't talk. I mean, it was, it, there was a big difference between it like this. But so you see the simple stuff in there? It didn't matter that I hadn't had a DWI or that I didn't go to jail or that I didn't have sex with a bunch of collie dogs. I, it, it, the story didn't matter. It didn't, it, it didn't, the story didn't matter. And, and this is the reason why. When we let the stories identify us like this, what generally happens is, guys, is we find ourselves in a situation where we think, well, eventually you'll hear what you need to hear. I love the sentiment. I do. But I can't make it line up with my experience because my experience is, is that if I let you sit long enough, you'll eventually build a case against us and you'll go away. You might hear what you need to hear, but I'm telling you from my experience of just watching them over the years, uh, what, what normally happens is that you'll go, nope, I didn't do that. Nope, I didn't do that. Nope. I didn't do that. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if we could just snag somebody brand new that was in the room? If when Francis showed up, if we could just pull her aside and, and, and uh, drink coffee and laugh for a minute or two, and then we could just ask some of these questions and she could go, yep, yep. You do realize, Francis, that that means you're probably an alcoholic based on what it says right here. And then all we're, then we put to rest all of the stuff. There's no head scratching. There's no, there's no game playing. Um, we just know that that's what it is. I'd rather know with some clarity what's going on. Um, guys, I need to wrap this up. Let me, let me just say this. Um, at the center of this cool program is a deepening relationship with our creator. These steps and their ability to get me to that power are the coolest thing in the whole wide world. And it's my prayer always for all of us that we would realize um, that they weren't printed or written as optional. They weren't written for any other thing. They were black and white. Here, do this. Um, and when we do, we get the results. And we can sit there someday and we can open our eyes sober and we can realize that I've been given the greatest gift that God could ever give um, a, a guy or a gal and that's the opportunity to be in a position to help others get clear of this deadly disease. To be able to affect change in somebody else's life is the coolest thing I've ever experienced. 
And sometimes to be able to save that life is some heady stuff. And we are truly lucky that we get a chance to do that. I'm going to shut up. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. Thank you very much, Myers.